welcome to today's Hemp Barons podcast, everyone. I'm host Joy Beckerman, and today we're going to be speaking with Aaron Schoenman of the Hemp Economic Development Group in Chicago, Illinois. Something that's been on my mind recently because it continues to come up, it's just crazy that this is continues to be an issue, but hey, this is the marathon that we're in in terms of uh, treating this safe and legal, versatile, valuable plant, hemp, uh, like the safe, legal, versatile, valuable plant it is, as opposed to a hysterical, demonized devil lettuce, uh, and where it continues to raise its head and become a problem despite the clear legal status of this plant and its derivatives is at the U.S. Customs and Border Protection um, Agency at our borders. And what's really interesting is that U.S. Customs is also getting really frustrated with the DEA because they just want regular guidance on how to deal with imports. And what's fascinating, I have been tracking the evolution of the U.S. Customs and Border Protection website um, for the last six years or so. And they used to have a page up there that said, can I import hemp into the United States? And it had a little bit of guidance. It was kind of like an FAQ. I then began to watch it evolve after the 2014 Farm Bill passed and legal status began to change. And I teach you know, credit-bearing continuing legal education seminars for attorneys. And it's important for me to be able to show attorneys the evolution of these various federal regulated websites because it gives them an insight into the different thinking. Um, and I've had clients, of course, involved in these uh, border issues, and that is what has come up again. The U.S. Customs and Border Protection is not getting any guidance to the point where they've taken their FAQ completely down. The page has been removed from that website, and that was removed promptly after the Farm Bill was signed, so somewhere in the beginning of uh, 2019. And the DEA has only provided guidance on the importation of hemp drug products, meaning actual pharmaceuticals like Epidiolex, et cetera. And that guidance was only issued um, on August 21st when the DEA issued their interim final rule. The, the excuse that they keep giving to U.S. Customs and Border Protection as to why they're not giving them guidance is there's no test to be able to tell the difference between hemp and other forms of cannabis, i.e., uh, is it above a 0.3% delta-9 tetrahydrocannabinol concentration or not? Um, and we're getting really sick of that excuse. First of all, there is technology being developed. Second of all, that cannot continue to be the excuse whether or not it contains some amount of cannabinoids. We're going to have to start trusting what is actually on the harmonized schedule tariff code on the papers. And if it says hemp, it means hemp, and you're going to need to let it through and stop giving everyone such a hard time. It actually puts the port division directors, so the folks there at ground zero, the DEA isn't there at the border. It's US CBP personnel that's there at the border. And it causes the port division director at that port to have to make the call, which creates a situation where at different ports, the same product with the same manufacturer can get through one port, but not another, or a port that it got through on one day, it can't get through on another day. This is just absolutely tediously burdensome to United States business people of every size, small importers, large importers, 
new businesses trying to take advantage of the opportunity that the U.S. Congress has given to all of us on a silver platter when it allowed hemp to remove, be removed from the Controlled Substances Act in every respect and to take its place in the broad light of day with America's other uh, legal agricultural commodities. So more pressure needs to be applied uh, to the DEA. And I'm very happy to say that not only do I do that through uh, my own consulting work, of course, at Hemp Base International, but through the U.S. Hemp Roundtable, which is our nation's leading hemp advocacy organizations. And let me tell you, we are going to start taking on, um, on a much more aggressive level, uh, these issues with U.S. Customs and Border Protection. It's completely unacceptable. And yet, that's the marathon wearing, guys. Without further ado, let's get back to the present moment here with Aaron Schoenman of the Hemp Economic Development Group. Stay healthy, everyone, this week. Make sure you get those ballots in, and we'll see you again next week. Aaron Schoenman, thank you so much for being with us on Hemp Errands today. Joy, thank you for having me. It's a great pleasure to be here. Now, I'd heard of you. I'd heard of what you're doing with the Hemp Economic Development Group and then had an opportunity uh, to get to know you a little better as you, through your involvement with the U.S. Hemp Building Association um, and the work that you do with those folks. Tell us, first of all, what brought you to hemp? I know you've got some roots in, in hemp in Iowa and that you're now hailing from Illinois. What brought you to hemp? Sure. So 2011-2012, excuse me, I was actually the director of Iowa Normal, so the National Organization for the Reform of Marijuana Laws, and very quickly came to a realization that in a very conservative and rural state, the only way to make any kind of forward movement with cannabis at all, be it hemp or the marijuana side, um, was through hemp. So after that realization was made, started to focus much more on hemp, uh, co-founded the Iowa Hemp Association with uh, five or six other people. It seems like it's so long ago now <clears throat> and worked for, you know, the next four years to get hemp passed uh, in Iowa. It was a fairly restrictive bill, but we were able to get something done. Indeed. And oftentimes the first rendition of the bill or the first bill out, they are conservative and in conservative states or, or, uh, I would say, hysterically based, so on and so forth. But the beautiful news is that Iowa got a bill passed and with one foot in front of the other and each seed getting planted in the ground, every legislative session and every year is another opportunity to change the law, to improve the law, to engage in the process and improve the regulation, as you very well know. Now, what made you decide, understanding, of course, that we need everybody involved in delivering on the promise of this plant? We need the lawmakers, the regulators, the researchers, the industry stakeholders, we need the manufacturers to create processing equipment, um, and we need economic development. So you formed Hemp Economic Development Group. What made you realize that's the place where I can be of the most use right now, knowing that there are so many areas that could use an Aaron Schoenemann in hemp? Sure. So when I started looking at the, the hemp market after moving back to Illinois, I took a couple of year, a couple year hiatus, actually, 
one of the things that I saw and, you know, many articles at the, the time were being written about it was just the lack of um, processing infrastructure for seed and fiber. And when um, we first started talking about hemp back in 2014, we, we were really focusing on the seed and fiber aspects. And I was really focused on the environmental benefits of hemp, particularly using hemp uh, for uh, as a tool in Iowa's nutrient reduction strategy to kind of um, take some of the nutrients out of the runoff before it hit the uh, Mississippi River and ended up in the Gulf of Mexico, causing a, a hypoxic dead zone. But, you know, at that point, uh, everybody was really more focused on CBD, kind of understandably by now. What really stood out was just that lack of processing infrastructure, going back to where I focused before in the environmental, not necessarily on the CBD side, focusing on the fiber. And so that's really where the, the focus on that kind of processing as opposed to CBD processing was. And seeing the kind of demand ceiling that had been hit sort of, uh, earlier this year for CBD and dropping prices, you know, what I really saw was that the future is in this huge area that we just haven't tapped into yet, and that's seed and fiber. So in order to grow seed holistically and process it, you also have to have some kind of fiber processing because what we're doing right now is either burning the stalks or uh, having very small scale experiments on what could be very large scale things. So that is what was you know, exciting um, for me when I started looking back at uh, uh, hemp again was just the, the seed and or sorry, with the fiber processing rather and the need to get that done, seeing that as you know something that comes from uh, hemp that people kind of know what to do with. We can uh, do hempcrete, hemp wood, things like that. But there's a lot of other really cool materials that can come from hemp fiber uh, in the stock. So that's that's where I focus. And who are you working with? I imagine it's everything from state, local, county officials, and maybe even at the at a, at a federal or international level, as well as stakeholders or farmers. It, it, tell us a little bit about, about Hedge and who you're working with. Sure. So the Hemp Economic Development Group focuses on working with regional development authorities to get its work done. The reason that regional development authorities are kind of our target is because a lot of the fiber infrastructure that's going to be needed is really expensive. Um, you know, you look at some of the hammer mills or some of the more advanced machines that are costing a million, million and a half dollars or more. Um, and that is kind of inaccessible to a lot of uh, farmers and a lot of people who want to get into hemp, but don't really have um, the, you know, financial acumen to uh, really finance a project that's of this size without kind of help from the government or from uh, the banking system. And we, through, you know, working with uh, the regional development authorities, we've been able to turn to banks and really have got them on board. And know, they know now that when we talk about hemp, we're not talking about CBD. And that's awesome because a lot of the banks, when they hear hemp, they automatically think, okay, this person's dealing with CBD. We have regulations against investing in CBD, so it's not something we can really do. And, and the FinCEN guidance, of course, that has been issued, it it's getting more and more relaxed. Having said that, banks are dealing with their own compliance issues and have their various levels of paranoia. 
Um, and it's a, a SAR is the acronym, a suspicious activity report. Yes. Uh, and so if banks do suspect that there is something funny going on with that hemp operation, they then their their obligations are triggered for these suspicious activity reports. Um, and yes, indeed, there was so much paranoia around that, uh, that, and they got so many different bulletins that they hear hemp and they think a CBD or, or a cannabinoid. Sounds like you are starting to do a wonderful job re-educating them and expanding that knowledge base. Yeah, once they realize that um, <clears throat> the seed market for you know, both human and animal food overall globally is somewhere in the $5 trillion range. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, you look at, well, we have uh, such a demand for uh, meat that if we're going to be able to keep up with our demand for meat by 2050, we need to double our uh, usable uh, arable land for, for meat production. And that's simply not humanly possible um, at all. Once they started to see that and then they said, oh, you know, from a holistic standpoint, there's a bunch of cool stuff that could be done with this fiber. That would be great investment opportunities. Also, they then start getting on board with, OK, well, let's talk about different kinds of bonds like industrial revenue bonds that could be issued through municipalities that could help fund some of the land acquisition or equipment acquisition and things like that. So between there and working with farmers and working with already existing businesses or just entrepreneurs that have an interest but don't really have expertise around them, um, we're, we're helping everybody kind of tie the strings together um, to, to, make, to make it work out wherever we're working. So right now we're focused uh, in the south suburbs uh, of Chicago, but we're also talking with, uh, there's a group in Gary, Indiana that said that they want to be very public about what they're doing. So they're okay with somebody talking about it. So right now I'll say that they have 2,500 acres of land that they want to turn into processing. And that would just be uh, reappropriating former steel mills and making them into hemp processing facilities. You know, with that, those kinds of projects um, and those kinds of groups and people, for instance, we're, we're tying together persons and, and entities who would be able to benefit from hemp for the benefit, not just of their own businesses, but really for uh, the industry as a whole. Such important work here. Um, and as you know, it's, it's such an incredible group of people across the nation, across the world, working together to, as I often say, chop that wood and carry that water to, to deliver on this and to create a functioning supply chain and to make sure that this financing is getting into the hands, of course, of small businesses. And as you say, those who are not as sophisticated um, and have access to this funding. And it's a win-win-win for everybody. And when I hear you say, because I, I live in the state of Washington, I, I've lived in other states in the United States, New York in particular, and in Maine, in Maine, of course, I grew up and it was paper, paper, paper. We had Scott paper, Kai's fiber, which makes Chinettes. Your, your parents, they either worked at the hospital or the paper company, right? And, and as you say, these steel mills and we have all kinds of just abandoned processing and manufacturing infrastructure around ports. I mean, very valuable, unused. And so we're really talking about in, invigorating is there a particular project either planned or done or underway that you could share with us? So right now we're uh, 
planning and somewhat underway with South Chicago Land Project. The reason that we're focusing here is because between Illinois, Indiana, and Michigan, uh, you know, all of that is about a two-hour drive, which is what would be ideal for a farmer if they're going to drop off their, their hemp or any other crop, right? We often say within 50 to 100 square miles of every biomass feedstock, that works great. Yep. And, you know, right now, uh, you know, the other benefit is that we're right on the uh, Union Pacific and Norfolk Southern lines, you know, in order to really reach deep into the states, those are going to be very beneficial. So that there's a lot of food companies, uh, Kellogg, uh, Wrigley Foods um, that are right here centrally located in the Chicagoland area. And then up in Michigan, you know, there's a lot of plastics engineering and, and all of that as well. So it is a somewhat ideal place uh, to put a, a processing facility. So that's a bit where we're focused right now. <clears throat> you know, we've talked with people who are builders uh, out in different states who want to come into the Chicagoland area and share their technology, share their innovation so they can so we can have green homes here, uh, just like there are in other parts of the country and, uh, you know, helping people to renovate their homes and make them greener and more efficient. There's a lot of interest in this area just because of its location. We're, I guess, very similar to this, this kind of Gary, Indiana project in that it's a very big former steel processing area where we are looking right now. Um, there's a town called Ford Heights that changed the name of their town to Ford Heights to court the Ford Motor Company. Uh, and Ford actually moved them to the town next door, Chicago Heights. Ford Heights was kind of SOL there. But, you know, this is an area that has a lot of former manufacturing that can be retrofitted just like Gary. And we're hoping that between, um, you know, those uh, older buildings and maybe some newer land that can be developed uh, that isn't being used right now, um, there's going to be enough for... Uh, not just the processing uh, in terms of the room that will be required, but there will be room and a demand really for an R&D center um, where uh, entrepreneurs can look and research their you know new materials, new products. And if they don't have uh, enough money, a capital for a space of their own, uh, there would be room that they would be able to rent and machines as well because that equipment can be uh, expensive. So we're looking at kind of um, you know the the holistic campus model that everybody is looking toward that we all want to attain, and I think that you know in the next few years uh, that kind of uh, campus model, if you will, uh, like a light industrial campus, will be becoming more uh, more viable and a lot more common. We'll be seeing them pop up. I, I've seen fiber go up in you know Montana now with IND hemp, and I know that. There's just um, another fiber processing facility built down in southern Illinois, and I know that Tiger Fiber out in uh, St. Louis is doing a wonderful job too. So there's uh, you know a lot of demand for fiber, and it's I think uh, a question of how much can be processed and how many people can can research it and and work with it. Absolutely. I love what you're saying and totally agree with you on these sort of research and development or clusters, these these centers. There's one very much being developed. I mean, I'm talking and it is an entire prison complex, former prison complex in New York, in, in Warwick, New York, that is being totally developed. Now, it is 
mostly adult and medical cannabis and, and extraction, hemp extraction. But having said that, it is a, it is a cluster and, 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 and it is very much being developed with those regional economic development folks. They're all over it from various county cities and, and then um, uh, the constellation folks that are involved in it. And not to mention the fact, of course, that uh, we all need to be more cooperative. The COVID and every other thing is teaching us that we need to transform our ways and sort of highlighting um, the flaws in our system. And I think hemp, cannabis in all of its forms, but certainly hemp, um, brings people together. It inspires cooperative models in every way. And when I use the word permaculture, for those who have heard it, most of them think of, you know, gardening and agriculture. And that's true. Permaculture comes from that. But permaculture is, is really the idea of creating systems that mimic nature. Now, nature adapts. Nature is not inefficient. Uh, nature takes the path of least resistance, being as efficient and productive as it can. And there are ways to apply that type of thinking to every type of system, a legal system, an educational system, a construction system, manufacturing system. And these cooperative models in every respect, I think we're going to start seeing and, and in fact already are. Tell us a little bit about Mr. Steve McGuera, your vice president at Hedge. How did you come to meet Steve? He's quite an impressive guy. Yeah, um, it's actually kind of a, a weird story. Um, so when I was still in Iowa, uh, before I left, I was planning on, you know, doing some uh, business with hemp there. So I had purchased a website, MidwestHemp.com. Uh, when I moved back to Illinois, uh, I was not involved with hemp for a couple of years. But out of the blue, somebody called me and said, hey, Aaron, are you doing anything with this web domain? Uh, are you interested in selling it? Uh, and I said, you know, let's let's you know talk about some other kind of arrangement. And through that, that person actually ended up uh, introducing me to Steve McGuera on the weekend of that person's wedding. I drove out to Kansas City for his wedding, and there I met Steve McGuera. So we talked about you know what Steve's company does, um, High Plains Nutrition, doing research and development with hemp seed and hemp feed for uh, different animals and. Uh, you know, started talking about uh, holistic processing and with the recognition that a, a company like his would need a lot of seed, which means that his byproduct or his his waste, which really isn't waste, would be the fiber. So we started, we, we kept on talking. and uh, That was actually last November. So it's only been almost a year since I, I met Steve. And then January, early February, we founded the uh, Hemp Economic Development Group, and um, that was because, you know, we really saw a need for more fiber processing. You know, if we're going to, uh, as a society, be a little bit more reliant on plant-based protein, and, you know, hemp is really a plant that can drive our society toward that, I think, then there has to be something that is done with the fiber other than just burning it. And 
you know, whether it's uh, biochar and pyrolysis, which I, I believe you're a fan of, I'm not exactly sure. Big time. Uh, but whether it's pyrolysis or, you know, just decorticating the hemp and using it for uh, hempcrete or for hemp woods or further refining it for the plastics, all of that really needed to be done. So in order for there to be an efficient model, like we were just talking about, that's, that's where hedge comes from. Is, is trying to bring that kind of thought uh, and that kind of uh, model to different areas, uh, different where, where, where farmers, you know, can benefit from it. Uh, and not just farmers, but areas where there's, you know, enough people to have enough jobs where uh, the hemp industry can really grow sustainably and, you know, be a thing. And such, what a team, uh, a great match with with your hemp in mind and and Steve's, you know, obviously he's a financier in terms of he's got his master's in finance and he's CEO of High Plains Nutrition, uh, quite involved in hemp and has been researching it. This is a wonderful team. And it seems to me, do you, is your brother also involved, Jacob? Yes, uh, my brother um, is definitely also involved. Uh, he was the third uh, pillar that helped us found the organization. Right now, he's been taking a lot of time to learn about hemp, whereas uh, myself and Steve have been kind of uh, knee deep in it for a while. You know, my brother has been working at our family business, which is a jewelry store, and we've had it since 1955. So he needed to uh, get reacquainted with this plant. And of course, all of his studies dovetail in, in his undergrad, uh, his BA in sociology and, and, and real interest in urban sociology. I, I see it as just a wonderful melting pot of, of disciplines and uh, experience that comes in to uh, advance the mission of Hedge. Oh, definitely. Definitely. I think that, you know, that touches on a really important uh, Part of Hedge's mission, which is to um, have in, to, to support inclusive growth in the industry. Um, right now, the the hemp industry isn't particularly diverse. I don't think that's a, a big secret. And especially with urban areas, uh, and you know, in the Chicagoland area, over the past you know 50 or so years or more, in terms of economic development, uh, people of color of all different stripes have been left out. I mean, there's been no room at the table for them, or there've been, you know, shady deals and people have been cut out. But with hemp, I think the the really cool thing is that there's such a big table, and there are so many seats there, that it not only is the right thing to do to have everybody have you know a chance to be at the table and you know, work with, you know, all with hemp and with all of us and with everybody else. But aside from being the right thing to do, there's no reason it shouldn't happen. They, that's a giant table and there's so many seats where, you know, we don't have even full sectors of the industry built out yet. And we all know that diversity and inclusion brings improvement. We're better together. The more points of view, the more experiences brought to the table, the board table or otherwise, we're, we're better together. We have the most, actually, and it, it's encouraging, despite what we all see, the most diverse U.S. Congress we've ever had in the history of the U.S. Congress right now. And this is a good thing. Oh, absolutely. I think that having worked uh, in politics in Iowa, because a lot of what I used to do is electioneering and campaign management and uh, strategy and all that, 
I can 100% say, you know, diversity is a very good thing. Um, and being able to not just, you know, represent uh, everybody's different viewpoints and needs depending on what different community needs are, but, um, you know, there there is actually economic benefit to having all of those voices heard, represented, helped out, you know, having fair access to different things, making sure that everybody, I mean, my mind immediately right now just jumps to the census because we have that going on and, you know, making sure that there, you know, are barrier, there are not barriers to voting and people can get fair housing and have, you know, access to the healthcare that they need. Uh, all of that comes with the diversity that we see in, in the, the legislature. So, you know, it's very encouraging. And um, I, I hope that after this next election, that only continues to grow. Me too. Me too. And, and I so don't mean to be a Debbie Downer in our awesome conversation. I do believe that the Supreme Court did just allow the the uh, temporary stoppage, I think it's temporary, but you know we were supposed to continue on with the census, I believe until October 22nd or so, and it right. had been stopped. Um, interesting to say that, but, uh, but and I've spoken about the census before, how important it is obviously, uh, so that everyone can be counted. This is how funding and, and officials and so on and so forth is allocated. It is allocated based on the census and so important. Um, that entire process and so important for people to participate in it. But we certainly need the U.S. government to keep doing it in order for that opportunity to be there. When you say Midwest Hemp, I think of the amazing Jamie Campbell Petty. Have you met Jamie? Yes. Um, Jamie is actually on Hedge's uh, advisory board uh, for our industry advisory board. The way that uh, we work actually is in every state we intend that we're going to have uh, a project. We intend to have uh, a state advisory board with all of the various uh, officials and um, not just politicians, but, uh, you know, professors from schools and um, companies, you know, everybody that you would need. And then to supplement, I mean, I guess that's most kind of like a supplemental advisory board, but our, our really big base advisory board is our hemp industry advisory board. And that Jamie Campbell is, uh, and, and the Midwest Hemp Associate, Midwest Hemp Council. Yes. Uh, yes. Definitely a part of. I'm so happy to hear that because, of course, as I, I say all the time, we are better together. And Jamie is is something else. I have been respecting and admiring that woman for a number of years now, and she really uh, gets it done. And, and so, of course, you're working together. And the Midwest Hemp Council is also part of um, is an advocacy member of the U.S. Hemp Roundtable. Uh, which is a 501c4 advocacy group. And I'm, I'm very proud to be the vice president of law and science. And, and we also just started a uh, minority empowerment committee. It's actually been a couple of months now and not your basic. We're not about tweeting and doing surface stuff. We are working with the Minority Cannabis Business Association, um, have already implemented some, some steps from the Annie E. Casey Foundation and are really wanting to educate our members and also be a conduit um, and mentoring folks and, and getting folks uh, aware of BIPOC, Black, Indigenous, people of color owned businesses in hemp, everything from ancillary services to farming and on up specific to hemp. But that's that's really what time it is. Um, 
And and this is fantastic, of course, that Hedge has these same um, ideas and and many submissions within, of course, its its larger mission. Now, tell me, in terms of Illinois specifically, you've got some pretty fairly friendly hemp laws in Illinois. We've been quite pleased with with how Illinois is handling hemp. Oh, yeah. Uh, I think the laws here... um... Are pretty great for what need to happen there um, the the legislature has been uh, very open-minded they've done a really good job listening to all of the, the farmers and activists who are here and uh, there are um, a couple of changes that we would like to see that we have submitted and have been working with a couple of legislators down in Springfield um, that really focus on the need to expand uh, the number of years um, licensure uh, is four. So right now uh, you can buy a one, two or three year license and uh, that's, you know, that's, that's great. But when we're looking at what banks need um, to issue things like bonds, if you're going to need to renew your license every three years, let's say, that's even if there's a 100% guarantee that you're going to get it renewed, that's a threat to them that you might lose your license. So unless, you know, there is, um, there, there are longer terms for licensure uh, and we're asking for five and seven year uh, terms, which is what bonds mature on, um, it's going to be difficult to really get that kind of institutional backing. Um, you know, the other thing that we were uh, looking for was to add to the definition of destroy because Illinois does say destroy, they don't say dispose. Uh, we're looking to add to the definition uh, of destroy uh, pyrolysis as a method of destruction, um, so that will be covered. But we'll we'll see what happens. Also, as a you know, um, as the public comment periods for the the federal level uh, close. Indeed. But, uh, and we just hit that one, didn't we, USDA? I don't know if you had a chance yet. You you may not have, um, but the, the Small Business Administration's Office of Advocacy, I'm sure you're aware uh, that Priyanka Sharma, um, the I think she's Assistant General Counsel, is just amazing and wrote, I think, some of the most impressive comments um, in the first open period. And and we were, she did major outreach. She probably got an email from her as well, Aaron, really wanting to get folks working with her and getting information and got her uh, hands in it. And I had two intense meetings with her, as did many other uh, folks, and they have filed some fantastic public comments in this reopened period. They were filed uh, on October 8th. Um, You've taught me quite a few things here, but you certainly have taught me a very important takeaway um, as I go forward doing advocacy work. And that is this idea that five to seven is what the banks want to see. And we are cutting folks off at the, especially with the year, with the, with the states that just have one year licenses, but even three years are insufficient. And, and I think that's a matter of, of uh, just ignorance and our legislators and regulators who are very hemp friendly and really want to see everyone um, succeed. 
they need to know this. This is a wonderful piece for my own advocacy that you have enlightened me here on that. That's incredibly important piece. And it, and it needs to be um, imparted onto these, onto folks as again, as I say, every year is another opportunity to improve the law and to improve the regulation. You know, so many folks thought, oh, hemp has been legalized as an agricultural commodity. My work here is done. No, now that we have the seat at the table, the real true marathon begins. Am I right? Oh, yeah. I've always said that, you know, when we were fighting to legalize hemp in Iowa, that this was the, the hard work. But afterwards, it's the difficult work that continues. A absolutely. I remember a couple of years ago or three years ago now in Washington State, um, I had drafted a bill and some wonderful folks in the House and the Senate. I got to prime sponsor it because the Washington State Hemp Program ran out of money. It, it, as it's often, it's interesting for folks to realize that, that Washington State legalized medical cannabis in 1998. Mm -hmm. Then it legalized adult-use cannabis in 2016. Both of those were done by initiatives of the people as opposed to, to an act of legislation. Not all states have that initiative power. New York doesn't, for example, but Washington does. It took... Us another year, and I'm sorry, 2012 is when adult use cannabis was legalized here. It took us another four years in 2016 to legalize hemp in the state of Washington. It was the last of all forms of cannabis to be legal. Um, and we didn't plant the first legal seeds post-prohibition in Washington until June of 2017, but the fiscal note and the budget was for one year to hire that full-time employee who was wonderful, Emily Feblis, was our original hemp production, uh, our hemp program coordinator. Now she works for the USDA after spending a couple years in North Carolina on their program. But, um, but the point is that when that money ran out, there was no, but it, it, human beings are not free. Full-time employees cost a lot of money, especially in a state like Washington, where there are wonderful benefits and it's a higher cost of living in any event. The money ran out. So, um, you know, had to uh, had to draft that a, a bill to get some more money in the coffers to feed the budget for another year. And in doing so, um, and I'd spent lots of time in state legislatures, I just happened to become aware that year in 2017, there were 51 active bills on the alcohol industry in the state of Washington. And that's when it really hit me. Alcohol prohibition ended several decades ago, and we've got 51 alcohol industry-related bills active in the state legislature. It's a marathon. We are always going to be fighting for or advocating for, I don't like to use language like fighting, but constantly advocating for diligently, vigorously, more fair, less hysterical uh, laws in every aspect uh, for hemp. And man, aren't you and Hedge doing a wonderful job of that, not just in Illinois, but what you do in Illinois affects the whole nation. Well, thank you. Thank you. Yeah, it's um, a really big task. And I, you know, honestly don't think that we would be able to do it without working with everybody. And um, it's, uh, it's, it's a really... Um, rewarding thing. I'll say purpose-driven, purpose-driven. It doesn't get any more fulfilling than that, Aaron. In the time that we have remaining, are there any other messages or anything that I may not have asked that you want to make sure the listeners hear from you? 
you know, I know that we touched on it uh, a little bit and it wasn't really the focus of um, what we're talking about, but with the election coming up and with my background in politics, um, I just want to say everybody needs to get out and vote. Um, this is a really important year um, and everybody's vote's going to count. Thank you so much for using that remaining time for that message, brother. Plan your vote this year. Uh, vote.gov or vote.org. They will both get you to the same place. You can check your state, your registration, figure out the best way for you to get your vote cast. Um, but plan your vote this year. Man, Aaron, you are wonderful. I can't wait to have you on again. It's a delight to watch the unfolding of the Hemp Economic Development Group. And I'm just wishing you uh, and Steve and Jacob and everyone who's involved with what you have going on at Hedge, just the best of luck. I'm sending you second and third wings, brother, and we'll have you on again. Joy, thank you so much. It was awesome being on and I look forward to being back. Great, wonderful. Stay healthy, brother. All right, thank you, you too. Thanks for listening to today's show. To check out more great cannabis podcasts, go to podconnects.com. Here's a preview of one of our other shows. Infused, a cannabis talk show, is a one-of-a-kind look inside the cannabis industry. Meet the amazing people who make cannabis businesses bloom as they join host Nick with Francesca and Mike for creative cannabis conversations. Get an honest look at the business of cannabis, including trends, best and worst practices, products, education, and advocacy. Whether you're kind of curious or running a cannabis, Infused has can of conversations that count. Infused is available on YouTube and is now streaming as part of the PodConnects network. Network.